Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome to a very special episode of May It Displease the Court, a podcast about how unjust the court system has always been, but especially in this age of rampant misinformation. We are very excited to produce this episode specifically for the big rhetorical podcast carnival taking place from August 16th through the 19th, and we are going to be promoting all of the episodes from other participating podcasts. This is a great way to sample other shows. This year's carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the community and the classroom. Other episodes will tackle the effects in the classroom, but this episode will discuss the effects on the courtroom. The carnival culminates with the keynote speaker, Dr. Renee Hobbs, professor of communication studies at the Harrington School of Communications and Media and founder of the Media Education Lab at the University of Rhode Island. And I'll be posting links to all of the episodes for your listening pleasure. Just a quick reminder, you can reach out and connect with us on social media. Follow me at Displease the Court on Facebook, at CourtPod on Twitter for updates and our thoughts on news and current events. Our email, you can always email us at displeasethecourt at gmail.com and let us know what you think about the carnival. All right, now on to today's episode. Misinformation has become a pervasive problem at all levels, from the highest levels of government all the way down to average people who live quiet lives. Misinformation affects national security and family dynamics. It sort of feels like we're all living in a huge psychological operation, promoting a viewpoint where the truth doesn't matter. Verified news stories from reputable media outlets are labeled hashtag fake news. Actual lies are spread by Facebook, crazy ants, some person your grandfather knows. And in a way, we all have to play the informal role of judge, looking at evidence and trying to discern fact and evaluate proof. And ultimately, where we lie, you know, may come down to who and what we trust. Now, I'm very excited to bring you an expert on misinformation who also happens to be an old college sweetmate. Serendipitously, through the algorithms of Twitter, I happened to see one of her tweets and learned what she w- that she was doing some really fascinating research. Dr. Amanda Cronkite is an assistant professor at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies at Fort Leavenworth. She holds a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Illinois. She's a former foreign service officer with the U.S. Department of State. And currently, her research focuses on the role of media and information in politics and national security. Now, it's important that I give a little disclaimer. Dr. Cronkite's views expressed here today are hers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of the School of Advanced Military Studies, the U.S. Army, or the Department of Defense. Welcome, Dr. Cronkite. Hello there. Nice to talk to you. I'm so happy to have you here today. Um, But before we dive into today's topic, many people may not be familiar with the School of Advanced Military Studies. I know I wasn't. Um, Would you mind explaining how you uh, get to be a student there? So when military officers uh, across the different branches have been in for about a dozen years, the military likes to bring them back to talk to them about how, what their next commands will be like. Specifically, for the first 10 years of their career, they're really just 
executing orders other people have planned and given them. And the students I work with specifically are going to be the planners for operations. Some of them will, are for the majority, since I work for the Army, are from the Army, but we also have students from all the services as well as uh, some agencies, for example, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. And they go through our program to better learn how to plan and when given kind of a strategic order from a political leader, how to turn that into military plans. That's fascinating. How did you, uh, how did you get there as a, as a professor? Well, actually, before this, I was on the faculty at the Army War College. Uh, so the war colleges for all the services are after people have been in about 20 or 25 years. So these are mostly lieutenant colonels and colonels um, who need to then kind of, again, they come back in for another year of school. They, they're they taught how to manage the political waters. They're taught about the, the interesting place that is the Beltway and how to see things at that point more from a strategic perspective uh, and to learn more about the interagency process since from then on, they'll be working with a lot more civilians than they have up until that point. And you're a civilian. You're not, you're not in, you're not military yourself. No, I'm, I'm a civilian. I really am fascinated by your work in the foreign service. I don't know anybody else who has worked in the foreign service. Can you just briefly describe kind of what you did there and your experience with that job? So I actually found out about the Foreign Service when we were both at the back under undergraduates at the University of Rochester, and this was when the test was still given on paper. So I took it because it was being given on our college campus, and I passed. And then I passed the oral exam because the Foreign Service has a multi-stage clearing process. And at 21, it sounded a lot better to go overseas for the government and earn a salary than go to grad school. So I went to India at 22 as a diplomat. So so you went to India and uh, how long were you there? I was I was posted there as a consular officer for about two years. So state has what's known as five cones. They're basically professional career paths. Most Americans, when they think of diplomats, they think of, you know, political officers schmoozing and, you know, this, this very kind of elegant job when actually a lot of what embassies do overseas is the protection of American citizens and issuing visas to people who want to come to the U.S. So I was working in the visa office uh, first as the anti-fraud officer and then as the American citizen service officer. So these are the, these are the people who, if you lose your passport, they can help you get a new one. <laughs> Heaven forbid something bad happens. Um, when you call the embassy, you call consular officers. Oh, it's like an Argo when they were coming, they were waiting to see them in Argo. Is that right? I believe it's a little less glamorous than that. I, uh, it's been a while since I watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so after India, where did you go? Uh, after India, I spent the rest of my 20s in various places in South America. Um, I got out of the Foreign Service after a few tours um, and continued living overseas before go deciding to go back to grad school and finally get the doctorate I had put off at 21. Well, I think that, you know, you can't... Uh... You can't trade that experience, that international experience, and bringing that perspective um, into you know your life and also into into your research and what you you know what, and what you're teaching now. How did you get to study kind of media and um, and how it affects national security? So I had always kind of worked in a sphere where words were important. Um, I knew a lot of reporters across Latin America. I 
worked with a lot of different groups and I spent a whole lot of time realizing, you know, the only normal people know is their own and people have a really hard time conceptualizing sometimes someone else's worldview. So I was very kind of interested in how how people's worldviews could be shaped by media bubbles. I spent a few years living in Bolivia, for example, and the the embassy had people who would translate the radio reports in indigenous languages into English and Spanish for the staff. And just the whole way news was presented to different communities was be very different. So when I went back to grad school, I said, you know, I want to, I want to do work on comparative political communication. So how media and information, how, how information moves in different environments in different countries. And at this time, uh, this was about 2009, 2008, 2009, most people really weren't paying attention to that. Um, my own advisor actually said to me, that field doesn't exist. And I said, it will by the time I'm done. And I just started kind of looking at how information was handled in different places. And I had the benefit of speaking both Spanish and Portuguese. So I was able to look at le- all over Latin America specifically. You know, that's really interesting because when I was uh, a senior at the University of Rochester doing my senior honors thesis in political science. I think we were in the same class. Um, we were. Yes. And I did, so I did mine on the, what I call the tabloidization of, of mass media. And I focused on, you know, the topics that were being covered and the changes in the focus of those topics, looking at the New York times. And I got a lot of pushback from the department um, that this wasn't political science, that this was, maybe sociology, but it just, you know, wasn't, wasn't really what the field was. And then, and it was like very hurtful to me. Um, And then like eight years later, I saw a very similar paper published out of the University of of Buffalo. And I just kind of feel like, you know, things were at the cutting edge, you know, back then, like 99, 2000, you know, um, like what you were looking at, like, you just, you kind of did know, you know, and the world didn't know what, what, how media was going to evolve and where we are now, but, you know, you kind of saw it in, in, in going um, around the country and seeing that. I think that's really interesting um, that you were able to like get that, you know, figure that out like pretty early on. Your latest published research is looking at fake news and the handling of misinformation in the media. And I'd, really like to focus our our discussion now on misinformation because we're all dealing with it, you know, and, and we don't really know what we're doing. And in your words, what do you think the danger of misinformation is? Or do you think it's a danger? I think it's a danger, but I also think it's a danger that's always been there. Um, whenever I kind of give a talk, I jokingly call misinformation 101 in, um, I've given this talk in libraries and places like that. I make a point to use examples from history. So one friend who's written a textbook on misinformation, she goes back, you know, and talks about the slander campaign against Mark Anthony for his affair with Cleopatra. And there's examples, uh, there's one example from Germany from the late, no, from the, just after World War One about um, that would later, it was a complete disinformation campaign against uh, the Jewish community, but it would later be why p- part of when the first initial initial rumblings or gossip about the, or rumors about the Holocaust came out, that people didn't believe them. So misinformation and disinformation have always been out there. They've always been a danger. What's happened in recent years 
is that the technology to produce a disinformation campaign has been democratized. You, d- you no longer need to have you know, the resources of a billionaire or a nation state to be able to launch a disinformation campaign. Um, so, and if, if all you're trying to do is, is spread, you know, spew chaos, well, throwing spaghetti at the wall with a bunch of bots creating, you know, creating fake news is a good way to do that. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the word disinformation comes from the name of the KGB office for propaganda. It was disinformatia or something. I'm, I'm certain I'm mispronouncing that, but, um, but that's where we got the term disinformation from. And I think we don't always think about, you know, who benefits from the spread of chaos, because it seems like no one benefits from the spread of chaos, but that's not true. There are very... Littlefinger said it best, chaos is a ladder. Right. Yeah, you know, in looking to drama, it, it is a good way to kind of get sort of what's going on. You know, it's like illustrates it um, in a way. So Littlefinger, of course, is a reference to Game of Thrones. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's amazing. I personally think that I'm a pretty good fil- pretty good at filtering out misinformation. But, you know, and I think to myself, well, you know, I'm a trained lawyer and we always think that our interpretations are correct even when they're not. That's something that we end up convincing ourselves. Um, so I'm likely way too confident in my own bullshit detector. What's probably more accurate is that I have developed a strategy for obtaining information that I tend to trust because I look at a, a diverse set of sources. I look I, I look to Twitter a lot. I look um, at journalists. I look a lot at academics. Um, experts in whatever field it is, lawyers, you know, that uh, have proven themselves to have, you know, solid legal reasoning. And so I, so I take sort of a survey of information on a regular basis, but that's a lot of work. And I don't think most people um, are doing that. I find that most people in my own social circle kind of, they sort of absorb what they hear from their community. If they're not real news watchers are in, they're not like as dialed into politics and things like that as I am, which why would they be? I mean, they don't have a degree in it. They're just, they're just kind of living their life, you know? So I see people sharing things on Facebook or calling things fake news, which I hate. I hate using that term because it's really loaded, but I see the people who say that they distrust the media and distrust the government. And I can sense that, you know, based on their opinions, that they really do distrust it. They tend to be sharing what I consider to be unsourced or uh, improperly sourced news stories or opinion pieces without really um, kind of discerning it or looking at their kind of, sometimes it, it doesn't even seem like they're reading the story. They're just kind of looking at the headline and that this is flying around social media um, and taking over like this whole anti-vax with COVID, this anti, and it's from people who were never anti-vax before, who have all their other vaccines suddenly are distrustful of this. And this is, seems like a, a really big problem. What have you learned about how misinformation spreads? So first and foremost, the fact that people aren't dialed in to the news could be taken as a good thing. I mean, if government is working as it's supposed to, ideally, people don't have to pay attention to corruption or malfeasance. There, there's some research that shows, you know, we might be happiest and society might work best if media works as a burglar alarm. 
The difficulty is people have to be listening for it. So, you know, the Flint water crisis is a very good example, unfortunately, of when media theoretically worked to call attention to something, but it was really late and it's been years and that's still not resolved. So people not paying attention is not something I want to fault people for. And also, whenever I talk about misinformation, I openly admit how many times I have fallen for it for really stupid things that I should have known better, like obvious clickbait about some sports player being traded from one of my favorite teams. I mean, just obvious clickbait, and I fell for it. So that's not a problem. I mean, that happens. Um, There's a reason Twitter added a feature saying, now, before you retweet something, if it's an article, do you want to read the article first? I mean, I think that's good because those are very kind of, let's say, low cost, effective ways to make people think, oh, I probably should read the article before I retweet this. In terms of how misinformation spreads and why it spreads, the brain is kind of programmed to believe what we want to believe. I mean, we have millennia in which going with our guts, going on instinct has worked really well for our species. And we only have a couple years now, where relatively short time, where we haven't had to worry about constant, you know, fight or flight in da- being endangered. So the brain, um, Daniel Kahneman won his Nobel Prize for explaining how the brain reacts instinctually versus when you go into thinking mode. Uh, the book is called Thinking Fast and Slow, and it's you know, been on every major book, every major reading list for the past few years. Um, So that's fine. But when we're on autopilot to draw from Kahneman's research, if we think we're, you know, if we think we're just repeating the same thing, the brain kind of does work on muscle memory. So if we, you know, if we're just, we keep, it's easy for us to believe what we're going to believe. And it's easy for the brain to, the brain wants to believe things that conform with its priors. So if something sounds like something that, that that I would want to believe, and it comes from a source I trust, that's going to matter more than if it comes from a source I don't trust. So if I've decided that I don't trust ABC News and I do trust my aunt, I'm going to listen to that aunt over ABC News. And if I'm really, if I'm not paying attention to news, that aunt may honestly believe that what she's saying is the truth. There's a reason we, we draw a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. If I don't know what I'm saying is false, it's misinformation. If I know what I'm saying is false, then I'm spreading disinformation or I'm initiating or furthering a disinformation campaign. The other reason it's really easy to believe misinformation is that um, sometimes it can actually be true but crafted. This is called malinformation, and it's the most effective kind. So think of the DNC hack in 2016. Um, everything that was then released, uh, was indivi- every piece of that was individually true, but it was crafted into a narrative such that the narrative was not at all true. But I can't, it's really hard to fight a malinformation campaign because each nugget is true. So how do you say that something's, how do you, if you're trying to fact check or correct or educate, how do you tell people that they shouldn't believe something if each individual piece is true, but the narrative isn't? That is some, that is evil genius right there. That is really, (laughs) wow. I mean, you know, you have to give props where props are due to the, to the, to the side. Well, even though we have to fight against it. Well, actually a Canadian diplomat said, sorry to interrupt you, but no, no. A Canadian diplomat said, a while ago, um, for disinformation to be effective, 90% of it has to be accurate anyway. 
It's just when that little bit that you hide or the little bit that you craft, because if, if people's radars go off, Hey, this doesn't sound right. You know, this sounds too good to be true. You're not running an effective disinformation campaign. Well, I think getting back to what you were saying about mal uh, malinformation, because I haven't heard it described that way. And now I want to do a lot more research and learn about that more because it seems like it's the most appropriate way to describe what's going on. So I really think you've brought up a really important point about that. How do we combat this? What do we do? (laughs) So there's really two, uh, two recommendations. Um, what the uh, Estonia has actually been at the forefront of how to combat this because, I mean, they live in it. They live in the disinformation neighborhood, and they've been the target for Russian disinformation campaigns since the Soviet Union broke up. So Estonia has gone by revamping their education system to include a lot more about media literacy as young as elementary school. I, I think that's a great recommendation. Uh, Peter W. Singer, who wrote Ghost Fleet, is currently working with a nonprofit that's uh, with a think tank or group that's trying to make available media literacy uh, programs for schools. Uh, it would be harder to do that in the U.S. because we have a federalized education system and our education system can be politicized. I mean, textbook contents in te- Texas and California are always uh, fierce debates. But if if states or even just school districts really wanted to start, there there are resources out there to put more digital and media literacy in people very young so that they, they know what to look for. And it teaches, those programs teach techniques, which is the other way you and your listeners can, can fight disinformation yourselves. One of the ways to really effectively fight it is lateral reading, which is how fact checkers read news stories. So instead of reading the entire news story and letting giving giving your brain time to encode potentially false information, you open up a second screen or a second window. And as you're reading, you go along and you check the facts. And that way, if there's something there that's false, you literally kind of don't give yourself your brain time to encode that misinformation. But don't you need sort of like a internal like alarm system that goes, wait, that doesn't seem right. Or are you just kind of doing it all the time? Well, if you're if you're lateral reading, you're doing it most of the time. Um, Again, this is how fact checkers check stories. The other thing people can do is gather news from a wide variety of sources because the terms in the literature are agenda setting and framing and priming. And these are media effects. The old adage is media doesn't tell you what to think. It tells you what to think about. So if MSNBC or CNN is giving constant coverage to a caravan of immigrants coming from some country, the the viewers of those networks are going to think about that more than if they're talking about tax policy. If someone's only watch, only reading the Financial Times, which has great straight down the middle reporting, but they, the nature of their audience is they spend a lot more time on economics than they do on environmental issues, which is more what The Guardian covers. Again, straight down the middle reporting, but they tend to cover that, you know, those environmental or let's say leftist issues more. So if you really want to, if you don't want to spend the time to lateral read, because it is cognitively difficult, uh, you really need to make sure you read across the spectrum and uh, AdFonts Media has, I think, the best media bias chart out there because they actually, you know, they actually 
talk about what their methodology for their coding system is, and they check between the people who are coding the stories for something called intercoder subjectivity, which is just a best practice whenever you're doing content analysis. So if you're reading something that, you know, ad fonts, it's a it's kind of an inverted V is how they is how they score. They score on two dimensions, partisanship, and then from straight factual to analysis, opinion to falsehoods. If you're reading kind of at the top and the middle of what it, of their chart, of their media bias chart, you're probably okay. It's as you get more to the more partisan and more opinion that you need to be more concerned about where you're getting your sources from. Okay, thank you. Those are re- really great tools that we can put into our own lives. Now I think I want to dive into uh, the legal portion of our discussion. But before we really do that, I think our listeners and myself really kind of need a brief explanation of a term that I'm hearing more and more of, which is deep fakes. What are they? So deep fakes are altered videos in which the subject that you are seeing has not actually said or done what the video purports that person to be doing. So Jordan Peele famously recorded one a few years ago where he was able to, with pretty primitive technology, alter the way President Obama's lips were moving on film and redubbed his voice so that it looked like President Obama was saying something that the president would never say. And Jordan Peele, the filmmaker, did this to warn people about it. Deep fakes are good, let's call them high quality versions of that. Cheap fakes are low quality versions of that, where you know, the editing's not really good, or the the, the the words and the lips don't really match up. But if you want to believe something about someone, a cheap fake works just as well as a deep fake does for a lot less resources. So the, uh, the video that was shared, I believe it was last year, uh, where pe- everyone was saying Nancy Pelosi looked drunk. If you actually looked at just the video footage or just the audio track, the editing was actually really terrible. But if somebody wanted to believe for whatever reason that Nancy Pelosi was drinking on the job, that cheap fake would reinforce that desire to believe that in their head and be in some cases enough evidence for someone to believe it. Right. So kind of in essence, it doesn't make a difference, which is... Well, it it makes a difference depending on what your point is. If I want, you know, heaven forbid, if I'm trying to convince, I don't know, someone to actually launch a bomb, um, I need to, I need that to be really a really good, high quality one. If I'm trying to make someone change a vote, I probably don't need them. I don't need it to be just as good. If I'm trying to just really rally someone up to be annoyed, well, if they, you know, let's use the sports analogy. Uh, after what was it? Inflate gate. I mean, there were there were very badly edited edited videos where you could tell that the the football wasn't actually as deflated as it looked like. But everyone wanted to make fun of 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 the Patriots then, <laughs> um, because because of what was being done. So you didn't need it to be a good quality video for it to be enough for you to spread it to make fun of the Patriots and Deflate Gate. Right. Uh, I recently read an uh, NPR article that Facebook researchers, um, in conjunction with Michigan State University, have claimed to develop um, artificial intelligence that can identify these deep fakes and track their origin by using reverse engineering. I think that they don't say how long it's going to take them to do this or if whether all videos are going to be subject to this analysis. So it's a little bit unclear you know, when they would be employing it and how effective it would be. 
But uh, what else do you think private companies could do to ensure that their platforms aren't used to disseminate deep fakes or cheap fakes? Well, I mean, a lot of the, the there's there's good technology there, but uh, unfortunately, and I'm sure you know this as a lawyer, in some ways, law enforcement and policy are always playing catch up a little bit to to technology. Criminals are really good innovators. Um, <laughs> so if you have someone or in this, you know, or political political operatives or anyone doing any kind of, let's say, malfeasance or ethically dubious things, so companies are always a little bit after the fact. So, you know, taking a video down after it's been downloaded X number of thousands of times only helps so much. I think it's very good that social media are taking down what we, you know, there's, there's pretty easy technology to find out, you know, to figure out what's a bot. So as those come down, that's good. But to use, you know, the spaghetti against a wall analogy again, only if you're in a troll farm, only one thing has to take off for you to, you know, be worth your money. So in terms of specific recommendations to companies, I, I'm hesitant to make them because I'm afraid that the technology, <laughs> by the time, you know, someone is listening to this, the technology could have changed. But I am, I do know that they have really good people working on, on it. And, you know, I know data scientists at, at all of these places who are trying to do better. But again, this is, this is just the latest technological way to spread disinformation. The bigger issue is if the brain wants to believe something that is disinformation, it's really hard to convince someone not to believe it. Um, my poor students hear me say all the time, it's easier to hack the brain than it is any cyber network in the world. Yeah, I'm. We're seeing all of this. It's you're, what you're saying is becoming like real world. You're we we kind of all know real world examples of this where we can kind of look back people that we know and how they've fallen for things and and you know as we have all fallen for things. Um, I too, you know, I you know I've shared things that have turned out to be false, and you're like, oh man, how did I do that? So you know, any opportunist is going to is going to try to exploit that. I think you made that point really well. In looking on how this could possibly affect the courtroom, I struggle as to whether I think the courts could handle. I don't think they could handle a deep fake um, or a cheap fake. I guess it depends on how they would evaluate the evidence, and I think that's where this gets really dicey for courts because the the function of a court is to evaluate the strength of the evidence. And as a trial attorney, if something came in to me, I most likely there, we wouldn't have dealt with it before. They're just going to say, Oh, here's, here's a video or audio that incriminates your client. And then if your client says your client would have to then say, okay, well, that's not real. Like, and then you'd have to see if you could find an expert who could evaluate the could evaluate the the video and and see whether or not it could be authenticated or exposed as being manipulated. Who would an attorney call? Do you know? Uh, well, I mean, I know that uh, I know that there are companies that kind of do basic basically forensic analysis like this using metadata from from videos. Um, I don't know any of them offhand, and I wouldn't want to plug anyone sure, anyway. Sure. But there are firms out there doing that. And but I, my concern actually isn't necessarily the being able to prove the video is false. Even if you can prove the video is false, my concern with the courts, with deep fakes in the courts is ha, that does that not still get, give someone enough that they can't get beyond a reasonable doubt? I mean, I think that's the real issue. I think I think it probably does. I think it does probably create a big enough doubt 
that a reasonable doubt and a reasonable doubt, what is it? It's a doubt with a reason. Yep. And I do think that that's, that is a, a, you know, a major issue that as to whether or not people would be able to exploit that. Uh, there was a, a pretty, you know, interesting case in Pennsylvania on the, uh, with the other side where a DA tried to prosecute a cheer mom for creating, um, they said there was doctored videos of other people on the cheer squad, other cheerleaders vaping and, you know, violating the, violating the policies of the cheer squad. And because the, the, the little, you know, the cheerleaders in the videos were like, well, that wasn't me. That, this was clearly faked. You know, I didn't do that. But then, so they filed charges, the prosecutor filed charges, but they were unable to prove them. So they had to dismiss the charges, but there were, but all the whole story went viral. Um, and this, this mom, you know, was kind of, her name was smeared and there's definitely going to be a lawsuit. That's pretty clear. And when you read the reporting on it, there's definitely going to be a lawsuit um, by her and, you know, kind of the, the attorneys for her saying, you know, these are obviously they were, you know, would have been difficult for her to fake. She doesn't have the technological ability to do this. She basically just had an iPhone 8. And anyway, why would she have bothered to cheap fake vaping? Who cares? You know, these are all really good points from her attorney. But it kind of shows how the, the legal system wasn't wasn't really equipped for this. They just dove right in and then they weren't able to sustain even, they didn't even fully come up with, uh, I think, an indictment on that. They just initially charged it and then dismissed the case, that portion of the case for that. So, well, if I can just piggyback on that, our legal system is also makes us more susceptible than some other countries to disinformation. So if, I don't know, let's think of some country, let's say Russia, just for no reason at all, actually wanted to uh, to hack or um, take cyber control or run a disinformation campaign against, against a company, maybe like, I don't know, North Korea did with Sony. The federalized nature of our, of our legal system and what you can prove, all the different jurisdictions actually makes it really hard to then show that another country or another entity in another country did something. So with the um, the Russian IRA people who were hacked, who did the hacking and who were charged, was it last year at this point? You know, the government had the resources to actually say, we charge these people, here's the evidence of these, uh, of these keyboard clicks, like this is how we know these people. Like there are ways to do it, but it is not something that anyone without nation state resources is able to do. And even if they can do it, get it it's not like Russia's ever going to send those people over here to for to face charges. And if they did face charges, what would they face? Would they be federal? Would they be state? Which is why I don't know if the technology is where the court should be concerned about so much as the, it's it's really kind of how are we going to interrogate this? And, you know, what 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 is credible for evidence? I mean, when DNA first came out, people said, you know, oh, it's only ninety nine point nine percent. We can't possibly trust it. And now it's, of course, everyone trusts it. So some of it is going to be, you know, at what point do courts just have to, or do lawyers, or do police just have to kind of start doing, uh, let's say, triage on video or audio recordings to to make sure they haven't been doctored. Right. And or should everyone just go in assuming that stuff has? Well, yeah. Well, at this... Okay, so this is how it would go. So how influential a video is going to be in a case depends on whether it could be admitted into evidence, just like you were saying. So the side that's seeking to introduce the video is going to just claim that it's authentic. 
And then the opposing side, whichever side that is, is going to have the burden of trying to prove that it is was doctored or uh, a judge is going and the judge is going to make the ultimate decision on whether to show that video to the fact finder, which could be the jury or the judge themselves if they're doing a bench trial. So all of this is going to be done. Well, it should be done before the trial even starts. There would be pretrial motions filed, challenging the video's authenticity. If you did it during trial, it would just delay trial. So that's anyway. So likely there would be a, a request for a hearing to determine whether the video could be admitted. And this is when likely that an expert would testify uh, that to say, you know, whether or not the, there's any, I don't know, artifacts, or, I'm not, I'm not really up on the technology, but, you know, problems with the video. And the New York standard is going to, is what is known as the Fry standard. And so that looks at whether the procedure technique has generally been accepted by a meaningful proportion of the relevant scientific community. That's what the Fry standard is. So it kind of looks at how the expert is making their opinion. Is this something that the, the majority of the scientific community uses? And other, you know, other jurisdictions use the Daubert standard. There's like five different criteria, one of which is, is it you know, accepted within the relevant scientific community. Other ones look at the methodology and error rate, and it's kind of a much more robust standard than the Fry standard. And so again, as Dr. Cronkite was saying, you know, we have different standards across different states, federal, all of this is really kind of specific to the jurisdiction. There's kind of these general ideas, but it, it would make it difficult because different standards apply in different places. So that's going to be a complicator for the legal system. And it's also going to limit how strong of an opinion an expert could actually give. You know, could they be definitive about a video? You know, that's that's going to be something that's that courts are going to have to wrestle with. And, you know, I think it's a good point. You know, when do we when do we just kind of always do that type of analysis? Has this been doctored? You know, if it becomes that common and widespread. I it, it hasn't in the legal in the legal field yet, but if the, you know, the price of admission, meaning, you know, how easy it is to make one of these videos, um, and also just the knowledge of it in amongst the population, that's going to determine like how much this uh, becomes an issue. And I think if there is something high profile, like a high profile case, then I think that you would see it a lot more, you'd see a lot more copycats. And I think at this point, the only reason we haven't seen it is because that hasn't happened yet. But it's something that the that you know, we should be aware of as attorneys, trial attorneys specifically. Well, I always remind people, uh, it, you know, the fact we have the cliche, the Roddenberry effect for a reason. When Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek, how much of the technology that was in that show have do we now have? So I think it's completely reasonable, you know, if we assume the Roddenberry effect still applies, and I think it does, that yes, courts are going to have to wrestle with this in the short term more than the sooner, let's say sooner rather than later. Well, Dr. Crockett, I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and perspective with us today. I think that it's really important that we acknowledge that we're kind of facing this, this onslaught of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and use the tools and strategies that you, you, you gave us to try to make sure that we're getting the best 
and most accurate information so that we can make decisions, we can vote for the people that we want to, and we don't, we're not at the whim of agents of chaos who are have their own agendas and their agendas are likely not something that's going to benefit us. So thank you again for being with us today. Um, this is a topic that's unfortunately something we're all going to need to know and navigate and guard against. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? No, I'm just, uh, I'm happy to be here. I, I think this is an important topic. I think it's, it's something we should all be humble about. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with falling for something that seems really awesome, but I, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So I think there's something, there's, there's also an important part of this that where we all, we all individually and we collectively as a society need to get better or to be more, if we want to stop the problem, be more willing to put in the effort to, to stop it. Yes. Thank you. I will be letting all of you listeners know about the other podcasts participating in the big rhetorical podcast carnival this week. Thank you for listening and I'll see you soon. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Cause unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.